uh, get started this evening uh, with a word of prayer. Westdale, would you open us tonight? Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you, Father, for the plan that you have laid out clearly in the uh, scripture. Uh, Father, I pray that we would uh, have a better understanding of it. I pray that we would uh, search the scriptures and uh, to see that that's so. And I pray, Father, that you would give us understanding of this. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Okay, just a few minutes of review here. Saw my diagram survive till this week here. So somebody, somebody, tell me what it means. There's an upper shield, lower shield. The upper shield's paradise. Okay. The lower shield is the Hades or the bad part, and then that abyss is the chasm in between, which was thought to have the fallen angels. Okay. Okay. And so what does? What the, is is that the way it is right now? No. Um, well, yeah, because if you're in paradise, it, well, it was changed when Christ came, and He restructured. Okay, right. Sometimes called the harrowing of hell, uh, but uh, the the word harrowing is a actually a it's an actually an old English military term that means to go in and rescue captured soldiers so so that's why it's sometimes called that's what's a name that's given to us the harrowing of hell and so that's why what we understood the uh, taking captive a host of captives in his train questions again feel free to do that nobody has yet uh, but uh, you're welcome to do so and I do want to make sure you feel a part of the class as much as is possible. Okay? So our topic tonight here, and we started it briefly last week, is the second coming of Christ, which we are suggesting occurs in two phases, right? Uh, actually, the coming of Christ, as described in the Old Testament, actually has three phases, right? And, uh, and uh, the uh, Old Testament saints were unaware uh, that there were multiple phases, right? They, they saw the coming of this Messiah figure as a monolithic event. But as history has unfolded, we recognize that there was a first advent of Christ in which he came as the suffering servant, and then there is going to be a second advent of Christ in which he comes as a conquering king. Uh, but as uh, with, that, with that precedent there, uh, we at least here in, in this class, are defending what I believe is the biblical understanding that this second coming of Christ is likewise uh, to be divided into two stages as well, the first of which is called a rapture from the Latin word rapto, which means to rescue, okay, or to catch up, okay, so to catch up and to rescue, and this is the term used in the Vulgate or the Latin Bible, uh, to in in many of these texts uh, where this uh, where this rapture idea is developed here, okay, and so we find here that I will come again to receive you to myself. I will catch you up to myself, that where I am there you may be. Uh, we are waiting for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. This Jesus who rescues us catches us up out of the wrath to come. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet with the, uh, them in the, with the Lord in the air, and so we will also always be with the Lord, so we're caught up together. Um, and uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.1 is written with regard to the coming of our Christ and our gathering together to him. And so this, uh, this coming of Christ at least in these passages, uh, is, is, is cast here in this idea of him taking us up and away, uh, whereas what we are going to refer to as the second coming proper, which happens at the end of the tribulation, is different. In this case, Jesus actually comes to stay, okay? 
and to establish his kingdom. And so it's because of that that we are clued in uh, to the possibility here that, there, that the second coming of Christ has two stages. One in which he takes away those who are his and rescues them from wrath. And then there's another stage in which he comes not to rescue anyone per se, although there are those who are on earth who are rescued, but they're not rescued out. Uh, the, in fact, the, uh, the removal at that time is actually those, the tares, right? Uh, the, you know, the wheat and the tares. The tares are actually taking these, these, uh, these, these wicked people uh, who are going to be removed and then burned uh, rather graphically. Okay? And we talked a little bit about the rapture in church history, and we recognize that not all of church history uh, has featured uh, folks believing in the rapture of the church. It's, a, it's an idea that has uh, had moments and then sometimes moments of abeyance. Uh, it seems that oftentimes they're associated a little bit with sociological issues. Uh, so during periods of time in which uh, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the church is doing poorly, it's suffering, it's being persecuted, uh, there have been those who have, who have anticipated and longed for uh, the coming of Christ as a rescue. Um, but uh, during periods of time where the church has been in the ascendancy, there has been a tendency to neglect this idea uh, because the church doesn't really need to be rescued at all because the tribulation is not there. Okay? Um, so tonight we're picking up on page 17, I believe, with inadequate theories of the rapture. And I've got three here. Uh, they're actually more. Uh, we're actually, particularly the mid-tribulational rapture has a number of variations that we're going to sort of lump together. hope that doesn't bother anyone. Uh, we, can, we can tease them out if you have specific questions here. But let's start with this first idea, and that's a partial rapture theory. And this theory operates on the premise that only faithful and deserving believers will be raptured prior to the tribulation. And this uh, operates from the fact that these passages here highlighted speak about the rescue of the faithful ones. And so the argument is that there can be believers who are living unfaithfully who will miss the rapture. Um, I, I remember uh, I was in Canada and uh, an elderly uh, woman who was uh, the wife of the pastor who had passed several years previously uh, was talking about uh, the movie theater and how she was quite opposed to Christians going to the movie theater. And part of her argument that she gave was that she was concerned that Christ would come back and find her in the movie theater, and that she wouldn't be prepared to go, okay? And uh, it reflects this idea that, that, we have to be, that we have to be faithful as Christians, not just Christians, but particularly faithful in order to get that. There, there's, a, there's a number of uh, spirituals that, uh, that we, we, we like uh, listening to spirituals, but some of them, the theology is a little bit off on. Um, and uh, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a common thread of this idea. I want to be ready to put on my long white robe, and I would not be a gambler. I'll tell you the reason why, because I'm afraid my Lord might come for me, and I wouldn't be ready to die. And so the idea here, and there's, there's a whole verse, you know, it goes through a gambler and a sinner. You know. So it goes through a number of these sins in which a Christian might engage. And the concern here is that Christ might come, and I wouldn't be ready. I wouldn't be one of the faithful Christians, and I would miss this and go, have to go through the tribulation. But there are several reasons why I don't think that, that works here. First, it ignores that faith is the prerequisite of being included in the rapture. John 14 speaks of uh, uh, that God is Christ is going to prepare a place for us who believe. And if, and if he goes away, he'll prepare a place and come back and receive us unto himself that where he is, there we may be also. Okay, so the only... The only prerequisite of this rapture is faith. I say, secondly, 
also, it falsely dichotomizes belief and a sanctified life. Um, you've heard me talk a couple of times about Keswick theology, uh, the idea that one can believe unto justification and yet not receive until some time later, or perhaps not at all, a second work of grace that jumpstarts the sanctification process. Okay? This, is, this has no merit in, in the Christian scriptures, and yet there's, there's a number of people who believe in these terms. And so it is these people who have taken the second step uh, that get raptured, and not those who have merely taken the first step. But this dichotomy cannot be sustained in scripture at all. In fact, these warnings here are not against faithful Christians and unfaithful Christians, but a, it's a distinction between the faithful and the unfaithful. That is, believers and unbelievers. The unbelievers do not go, uh, only believers do. It also, I think, turns uh, passages that exhort Christians to watchfulness for the raptures into a condition for participation in the rapture. We are exhorted on multiple occasions to watch and wait and pray uh, for the coming of Jesus Christ. And those who hold this view uh, are of a mind that those who are not actively watching for Jesus Christ will be left behind while those who are actively watching with their lamps all trimmed and burning, to use another uh, uh, spiritual, uh, that, 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 they, they won't, that they won't get to go. And, so, and that brings us to our next point here. It misinterprets the Olivet Discourse. You'll recall here in uh, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25, there is, a, there, is, uh, there is an anticipation of the coming of the, the bridegroom, and some of the virgins will be prepared with oil in their lamps. Some of the virgins will be unprepared and have no oil and will seek it the 11th hour trying to, to get this oil, and they won't be able to get any. Um, but as we're going to see here tonight, the, the Olivet Discourse is not directed to the church, but rather it is directed to those uh, Jewish believers, or who, those who become believers, uh, during the tribulation, which will be a, gr a great number of them, right? And so uh, we, we find that it is during the tribulation that these many Jews are converted, but not all, okay? And so what happens is when the bridegroom comes, there are some who will be prepared and some who are not. This is not a reference to church saints, but rather to Jews who convert and believe in Jesus Christ as Messiah and those who do not. Okay? Uh, but all will recognize at the end, at the close of the tribulation, that in fact Jesus Christ was the Messiah, uh, but some uh, will find themselves unprepared. This is not a reference to the rapture, however. And then finally, and this is a theme that's going to come up a couple of times here, uh, this idea that there's a partial rapture of the bride of Christ, some of whom go to the wedding ceremony and others who reign me be behind, seems to really be an odd scenario for a marriage. The entirety of the bride isn't there. You know, only the particularly faithful Christians uh, uh, enjoy the, uh, the, the, the pleasures of, of this, this marriage, those who are not particularly faithful but are still believers don't get to enjoy it. And that's, this seems, it, of course, we don't want to make metaphors and scriptures get up and walk on all fours. Uh, but there, there's a metaphor here that doesn't seem to work if some of the bride is in heaven and some of the bride is on earth. Uh, that's, that's not a very satisfying wedding. Okay? So the partial rapture, and it's, it's a rather a minority view, uh, I don't think holds up under scrutiny. Secondly, we have here the mid-tribulational rapture, and there's a variation sometimes called the pre-wrath rapture. And the idea here is that the church will endure either the first half of the tribulation or perhaps even some more of it. it, it, it it's not always necessarily the midpoint uh, that is, the, uh, that is the, the, this is the trigger. Uh, some would say that it happens uh, at some other point 
but during the tribulation. So the church will endure some of the tribulation, but not all of it. Okay? So the idea here is the first three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week, which is a time of tribulation, but it is not the great and terrible day of the Lord. Uh, the, the believers will go through this first half and not the second half. This was a, a view popular within the first three centuries of the church. Remember I said during periods of time when tribulation was great, there was a yearning for the coming of Christ that tended to be more intense, and that's true during the first three centuries of the church. A lot of Roman persecution takes place during that time. And a majority of those who lived during this time were not only premillennial, but also anticipated that the church would find relief and rescue uh, from Jesus Christ, uh, not before the tribulation, because they thought they were in it, okay, but at some time before the worst of the tribulation uh, would begin. Okay? Oftentimes the trigger here, uh, based on the language of 1 Thessalonians 4.16, that Christ comes at the last trump, uh, that... Uh, I have to say trumpet now. I can't just say trump anymore. Uh, but uh, at the last trumpet, uh, we, we find that, uh, that uh, the rapture takes place at the last trumpet. And uh, based on what we find in Revelation, the last trumpet, the seventh of the seven trumpet judgments, takes place roughly at the midpoint of uh, the tribulation. Okay. It also seems to connect then with the translation of the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. You'll recall that, that there were two witnesses, two uh, uh, figures. There's a lot of question about their identity. Uh, per, uh, apparently Jews uh, who, are, who are assigned here to bear the gospel to the Jewish nation uh, whether they are actually historical figures from the Old Testament is a little bit unclear, and, and probably some of you have opinions on it. It's probably not necessary to uh, what we're doing here. Uh, but, uh, but these two witnesses are killed, and their bodies lie in the street for a period of time until what? They're translated. They're brought up into heaven. And, and those who hold to the mid-tribulational rapture, see them as emblematic of all church saints who will be translated into heaven. But there are several problems with this view as well. Number one, the last trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15 is probably better stood as an end times trumpet rather than the specifically last trumpet. Okay, um, There's seven trumpet judgments, of course, but there are other trumpet blasts that take place in the book of Revelation 2, and the last one doesn't come until considerably later. In fact, this is an argument that's sometimes used by the post-tribulationalists because there are trumpets that we continue to hear blasting as you work your way through Revelation all the way up to the end. Okay? And so some uh, would use this argument to argue for a post-tribulational rapture because there are trumpets that take place after the last of the seven trumpet judgments. So uh, there is, seems to be something of an arbitrariness uh, to suggesting that the last trumpet is necessarily the last of the seven trumpet judgments. Okay, um, And so I, I, I'm not sure that that necessarily holds for us. The first half of the tribulation, secondly, is in time of incredible wrath. You do the math, right? The, the, the first of the seals, what happens? A, a, a third of the people on earth die. The second seal, what happens? Another fourth die. Now, whether this is a, a fourth of the remnant or if it's a fourth total, uh, in any case, we, got, we have half the population of the world that is dying during the first half of the tribulation. So to suggest that, you know, yeah, if I get out in the middle, then I'm, I'm, I'm missing the great and terrible day of the Lord. Doesn't really hold up too much because those, that first half is really, really, really bad. Half, half of the world population dies. 
Think thirdly, it denies the imminency of the rapture. Now, we haven't necessarily talked about that. We haven't established here uh, the imminency of the rapture. That is, it is unannounced. There are no signs necessary for it to occur. It could happen at any time. Okay? But if it's at the midpoint of the tribulation, we should be able to know exactly when it happens. Because the start of the tribulation is when uh, Antichrist makes the treaty uh, with the people of Israel, and it's 1260 days later that he breaks the treaty in the middle. So you ought to be able to just count 1260 days until you know exactly when the tribulation is going to occur. And uh, because of this argument from imminency, I don't think we can make this uh, precise prediction here. Another a fourth argument here is that the two witnesses are actually Jews connected with temple life, which is restored during the tribulation. They aren't church saints per se. Okay? They, they, they were believers, yes. But they are not part of the Gentile church. Rather, they're associated uh, with, uh, uh, with uh, uh, the, uh, the, the Jewish worship that resumes here during the tribulation. And then alternate theories, which place the rapture between the fifth and sixth seals uh, in response to the cries of the martyrs or with the redemption of the 144,000 in Revelation 14, I think, suffer from similar deficiencies. Okay, so there's variations of this mid-tribulational view, uh, but I think all of them suffer uh, similarly. Okay, questions on that one? I know some, there was, uh, there was a reflection last week of some questions about this. Any thoughts that you might have? Well, let's migrate then to the post-tribulational rapture, post-tribulational rapture. Uh, which, as we have suggested here, is probably the majority view among evangelicals. It's hard actually to assign that. Um, I think I can say very firmly that among uh, schools of evangelical thought and scholars writing within evangelicalism, it is far and away the most popular view among evangelicals. But I do think that there's probably a grassroots anticipation of a pre-tribulational rapture that uh, runs much deeper uh, than the scholarly community uh, uh, perhaps is, is, uh, re reflects. Okay, so the post-tribulational rapture. This view rejects the term rapture. Uh, they understand this term to be much too strong. Okay, and borrowed, of course, from the Vulgate, uh, the, the Bible of Roman Catholicism. And so uh, the idea of a rapture does not hold any uh, particular uh, affection uh, because of uh, factors such as that. However, adherents of this view do recognize that there will be, in the end times, a gathering of the redeemed of every age who then function as an escort or entourage for the second coming of Christ in triumph at the end of the age. So if we can, you know, again, give the videotape of this, right? Uh, the believers will be gathered from the four corners of the world in order to meet Christ in the air and then escort him down to earth where he will take his place as the king. Okay, the, the ruler, uh, in a pre-millennial situation here. So he's going to reign over the millennial uh, messianic kingdom. Okay? This view, as I say here, has been very popular historically. In fact, its adherents often prefer to label historic premillennialism uh, because there are precedents that go well way back in the history of the church. Because this view is not only complex, but quite widespread in the evangelical community, I'm going to spend a little more time on this one. So what are some of the problems with this post-tribulational rapture? Well, firstly, it depends considerably on a, a particular view or interpretation of the Olivet Discourse. Remember, we've already mentioned that here, uh, in which... 
Uh, we find that the, some virgins are prepared, some virgins are not. Uh, we find that there is a there is a there is a intermingling of the wheat and the tares uh, during this time, and at the end of the age, these are separated. Okay, and so and so uh, there have been those who've looked at that and say, "Aha, that's the rapture." But as we look at uh, Matthew chapter 12, this does seem very firmly to be really a window, sort of a, a window of instruction for Jews. I mean, remember Matthew is written, what, what, what's the audience to which Matthew is written? Yeah, so, so, so it's Jews. Remember uh, those who, and, and it's, it's an attempt here, in part, to compel faithless Jews to embrace their Messiah, Jesus Christ, and to defend his identity, and then also uh, really to prepare uh, those, who, those believing Jews uh, who believed in, who embraced Jesus Christ as their Messiah, and uh, were probably asking a lot of questions as to, okay, what happened, and what happens to all the promises and the covenants that were ours? It seems like we took a sharp left turn here. And uh, I'm not sure where we're going, perhaps the Jews were saying. And so Matthew is written with that, with that audience in view. And part of the instruction here given in the Olivet Discourse is to explain how God's attentions return to the Jewish people at the end of the age. Okay? And so the 24th and 25th chapters of the book of Matthew are directed towards that end. Okay, so it's explaining how is it going to unfold in the eschaton? How is God going to return his attention and his favor to Israel in the end times? How are the covenants and the promises made to Israel actually going to be fulfilled with Israel? And Matthew 24 and 25 are designed for that end. And so it seems a little odd to us, but this is, this is either two chapters directed uh, and perhaps giving instruction to those Jews who convert during this window of time. They'll, they'll know what's happening. They'll know what's going on because they have two chapters that are effectively directed to them. Okay, And so that fact of itself means that any references to a removal or a coming of Christ during this period is not a reference to a rapture per se, but actually the, the regathering of the Jewish people uh, who convert during the millennium. So it's a different audience. It's not, it's, not, it's not directed towards the church, but rather it's directed towards Jews who convert uh, during the millennial period. Okay, And so let's, let's see then uh, how that, this, this, this plays out here. Uh, well, first, uh, yeah, and, uh, for instance, uh, we find also that there are signs of the coming of the Christ uh, uh, during this period as well. You know, the question that, that begins this, this whole discussion is this. Tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? And Jesus actually gives them. Okay. Yeah, and, and it, you, 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 in fact, he... You can sort of, you can almost outline this section here based on the signs that Christ has given that indicate his, his coming is imminent. Okay? Uh, so the Trump, and so, so what, what, are the, what are the answers to this, this idea um, that, uh, uh, the, uh, of, of this section? Well, the trumpet, Matthew 24, 31 doesn't necessarily share identity with the trumpet of 1 Corinthians 15. Okay? So there's a lot of trumpets in the end times, and I don't know that this necessarily uh, anticipates one of the historical trumpets described in the book of Revelation, but rather is a reference to an end times trumpet uh, that blasts, really, uh, to signal the beginning of the end. The removal, then, that the Olivet Discourse... Uh, anticipates was not their own removal, but the removal of the unregenerate. Remember when the uh, 
when the tares and the wheat, which are growing up together, uh, come to the end, what, what, is, what is gathered and taken away? Well, the faithless, the unbelievers, they're taken out and burned. So the removal here is not a rescue of the faithful, but a judgment of the faithless. So it doesn't really match what we know of the tribulation, excuse me, the rapture. Um, and so, uh, and then secondly, the individuals being rescued here are not described as church saints, but as a Jewish remnant. And, and, and laced throughout these chapters are all sorts of references to the law, to the temple, to sacrifices being offered. These are, these, this, is, this is not the church that is in view, uh, but rather practicing Jews, okay, and that are that are in view. So they're not church saints. They're elect, but they're not church saints. Rather, they are a group of Jewish believers who convert during this period of time. Remember, that's one of the purposes of the tribulation, right? Uh, part of the purpose of the tribulation is to is to winnow God's people, and to and in so doing, gather a remnant from the four corners of the earth, and they'll all they'll all migrate here physically, personally. Uh, to this place. In fact, that's where the climax of the tribulation and the commencement of the millennium take place. When they finally get together and they're about to be snuffed out and exterminated uh, by the armies of Antichrist, what happens? Christ arrives on the mountaintop and they will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will weep. Um, with regrets, perhaps, but with relief that their Messiah has come, and he ultimately does, in fact, rescue them at this time, not by taking them away, but by removing their enemies. Okay? They remain behind and receive their earthly reward. Again, you, you look through the Old Testament, the reward that is assigned to the Jews is very, very frequently connected to a land, right? Uh, there, was, there was an anticipation that they are going to that they're going to dwell forever in the land, okay? Which seems a little bit odd to us because we think, okay, I want to go to heaven and be with Christ. But a lot of their promises anticipate that there are earthly rewards as well, and it shouldn't really surprise us. There is a new heaven and a new earth, and, uh, and the Jews are anticipating a, 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 a reward in this world in which they have suffered so long, Okay? The church, on the other hand, is really absent during the Olivet Discourse. We really see no references to church saints. In fact, uh, we're going to notice here in Revelation 4 through 20, there's no reference to church saints either. Okay? Uh, there's, 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 at least on the earth, there is the marriage in heaven, uh, but on earth there is no reference here to the church. It's if, in fact, the church is going through this tribulation, it's strange that they are completely ignored uh, by the writer of the book of Revelation, John. Okay? Another argument that is raised, not only this Olivet Discourse, but also 1 Thessalonians 2.2, 2, uh, which suggests that the day of the Lord precedes the rapture. Okay, let me just uh, take us there, because I think it's important. I think that should read, does yours say 2 Timothy Second Thessalonians 2 2 or first? first? It should say second. second. Yeah, that was a mistake. Corrected it in my notes, but apparently it didn't get to yours. Okay, so, in fact, this is one of the themes, particularly of Second Thessalonians, but of First Thessalonians as well. Uh, there, there, is, there is a concern being raised uh, by the church at Thessalonica uh, that they might, in fact, have missed this regathering, and they were enduring the tribulation. And I think Paul, part of Paul's message here is what, you, what you're enduring right now may be a kind of tribulation, but it is not the tribulation. You have not missed the rapture. And so this is how we start here, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. We ask you, brothers, okay, so there, this is a question they're asking. What about the second coming of Christ and, and our being gathered to him? 
We ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Okay? And so that, that, was, that, that, was, their, that was their misunderstanding, that perhaps the day of the Lord had arrived and had started, and they had somehow missed it. Okay? And he says here, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will exalt himself, oppose, oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God um, and, or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So the, the argument here is that if that, if that has not occurred then the day of the Lord is not underway. Now, as you can read that, though, you perhaps could look at that and say, aha, these things actually have to happen before the rapture happens. But I don't think that's the argument that Paul is making here. Um, when he says the day of the Lord uh, must come uh, first, I think the day of the Lord is not the first, final consummation here. The day of the Lord is actually a broad theme within Scripture. In fact, we can find historical days of the Lord laced through the Old Testament. Okay? A, day of a, a day of the Lord is any time in which God bears his almighty arm in an act of supernatural power to establish his way. Okay? Now, there is the great and terrible day of the Lord, that is, we still anticipate, uh, but it's not the only uh, definition for the day of the Lord. And so uh, his argument here is, if in fact these things have not happened, the, if the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, has not established himself on, uh, in, 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 in the ascendancy here, has not established a treaty with Israel, and so on and forth. The, the, the tribulation hasn't started yet. Okay? And until you see those things happen, don't worry about having missed the rapture, because you haven't, okay, is the argument here. Okay? And so the purpose of 2 Timothy 2 is not to give signs of the rapture per se, but to prove since various day of the Lord events are still future, that the Thessalonian saints had not missed the rapture. He's arguing here from the greater to the smaller. Since the broad day of the Lord is still future, the rapture, which is a part of that day, is still future as well. And so, to me, this, this argument here of 2 Thessalonians is to say that because the events of Revelation that mark the tribulation have not begun yet, then you haven't missed the rapture. Okay? And the gathering here. Uh, to be with Christ. There's also an argument sometimes made in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Remember we talked about this idea of going up and then functioning as an entourage of, of Jesus Christ. Well, apparently there is a, uh, a usage of the verb here, uh, apantano, uh, so, is sometimes used in this way. But very often it is not, and we can find more occasions in the New Testament where it is not than where it is. And, uh, but, I, but I think if we look at the rest of scriptures, which are clear, which is of course a key principle when reading the scriptures, right? The clearer scriptures uh, interpret the less clear scriptures. And John 14, I think particularly, emerges as a very clear passage that the destination of those for whom Christ comes is his Father's house. Okay? I am wherever Jesus is right now, preparing a place for us is where we're going. Okay? So he's not preparing a place for us here. He's preparing a place for us there. And so the, the very clear understanding here is that this rapture of the saints that takes place is not to the earth, but rather to heaven, to the, the abode of God here. Okay. I think also, if in fact you uh, uh, argue that there is a simple 
coming up to meet Christ to escort him back. There's a lot of pieces of the end times that are, that are, that are missing, right? Uh, the uh, judgment seat of Christ, for instance, takes place in heaven after the rapture. Okay? Uh, and, uh, and there's no time for that. There's no place for that here. And uh, the marriage of the Lamb takes place in heaven as well. And I think this is perhaps a good time for us to review here what happens is that the marriage takes place at the Father's house in heaven, but the marriage supper takes place on earth. And this is following, as somebody mentioned earlier before, uh, before class here, uh, this, is, this, is, this is the pattern of the Jewish wedding, and the, and the original readers would have understood this quite, quite, quite plainly, that there's going to be a marriage up there, and then there's going to be a migration... To the to to the to the, the to the to the place where the party would take place, uh, which is on Earth. Okay. Finally, here the scenario cannot account for the millennial population. Okay. Um, in fact, uh, as uh, there's a there's a book that was written several years ago, about almost thirty years ago, it was the very first of these. Multiple views book. I don't know if you're familiar with them. That a uh, lot of the Christian publishers have done. So uh, when you have a, an, an issue on which there is debate within evangelicalism, there will be a, there's like three views or four views. I've actually participated in a couple of them uh, myself. Uh, um, um, uh, got one coming out in January on the difference between dispensationalism, progressive dispensationalism, progressive covenantalism, and progressive and, and covenantalism and I also did one on the extent of the atonement so so it's it's the, the, these books have been proven fairly popular as a way of getting multiple positions out on the table by a proponent of each position and then a, then an exchange between them and the very first one of these that came back about out about 30 years ago was a multiple views book on the timing of the rapture that was the very first one that was written and uh, the fellow who wrote the post-tribulational section, Doug Moo, some of you know that name, some of you don't, uh, but Doug Moo uh, actually wrote this, and towards the end of his article, he said, I've got a major problem with my own view that I don't have an answer for. Well, that's red meat for, <laughs> for the rest of us, right? And, and what's, the, what's the problem he came up with? Is there's nobody to get into the millennium with natural bodies, okay? Okay. Track with me here. If, in fact, all of the believers go up, are resurrected, and meet Christ in the air, and escort him down to earth, and the millennium begins, who actually is going to populate the millennium? Well, everybody's been resurrected, or, if you're left behind, you're, you're an unbeliever, so you're going to be gathered up as tears and burned. And so there's no one there to enter into the millennium in natural bodies. And we need people in natural bodies because we can't all be rulers. There has to be somebody ruled, right? We can't all be chiefs. There have to be some Indians. That's probably politically incorrect. But, but, uh, but, but there, you have to have that in order, to, in order to function. Furthermore, what happens at the end of the millennium? There's a rebellion, right? So these, these, these individuals in natural bodies who populate the kingdom begin to reproduce, and their children are not necessarily believers, right? They are, because they, they got in, but their children are not, and so this accounts then for the possibility of a rebellion against Messiah that is quashed at the very end of, of the millennium. And Doug Moo admits I've got a problem here, and doesn't really come up with a solution. Now, there was a second edition of this, this book that came out about five, six years ago, and he has, had come up with something of a solution, uh, but I didn't find it compelling. Basically, uh, his idea was that uh, when, uh, when unbelievers uh, saw the rapture happening, uh, that uh, a great number of them instantaneously uh, cried out in faith 
Um, and so they were saved, but weren't actually part of the group that went up to escort Christ down. But, but as you can see, there, there, there's a lot of intrigue here that just doesn't commend itself for its simplicity. Okay? And so uh, I, I really think we have a problem here uh, with a post-tribulational rapture that has not really been addressed, uh, Doug uh, Moo's uh, uh, arguments notwithstanding. Okay? So that's the post-tribulational rapture of the church, which we've addressed here, I, I'd like to think, adequately. Any questions that you have about the post-tribulational rapture? Well, just to, just to comment, Grudem, which I highly respect, reading his doctrinal book, and uh, the thing is, is he's, he's post-trib, and, and the thing is, is Matthew 24, he talks about Matthew 24 is the church age, and I was reading that, you know, to verify uh -huh. And uh, I noticed in verse 16, it says, let those who were in, in Judea flee. So he totally ignores the geography. It said, not let, not all across the world, let those who were in Judea flee. So that's Jewish. And then, and then down verse 20, plain new flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. Again, you know, unless you're Seventh-day Adventist, which is a cult, you know, you're not... Right. Particularly, you're not concerned at all with the Sabbath as as a church age believer, and uh, you know, and but you know, it's like it went over his head. I mean, yeah, and the reference continues on to sacrifices taking place yeah, at the temple. Others, but those two things, I you know, I thought, how how can how can this man miss this? Right, it's an obvious thing. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I would agree. I, I would agree with you. I, th I think there is there is good evidence in Matthew 24 and 25 that this is a a Jewish discussion and not a, a ecclesiastical church discussion. Right. Yeah. Okay. So that brings us then to the to what I'm going to defend here as the biblical understanding, and that is the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. That is the anticipation that the church will be gathered up to heaven for a period of seven years. So before the tribulation begins, they will, be they will be gathered into heaven and thus escape the entire period of God's eschatological wrath. So let's see if we can't uh, uh, tease this out in some key verses. We'll start here with Revelation 3. Um, I will admit here right up front that the biblical arguments for uh, the pre-tribulational rapture are not so strong, perhaps, as some other doctrines that uh, uh, we discuss and hear and defend. Uh, nonetheless, even though, even though the proof texts are not, perhaps, as strong as we'd like them to be, I think there are, are, are broader arguments that are made in the Scripture uh, that I think seal the deal. And we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to those uh, after we look at some of the key texts, because I think those, those arguments that we're going to get to at the end, which are not necessarily connected to a specific verse, may actually carry more weight uh, at times than the, verse, the, the specific verses themselves, which I think perhaps sometimes makes you a little bit unnerved, because you, you really want to have a Bible verse that you can cling to and say, this Bible verse teaches X or Y, uh, uh, rather than saying, okay, there's an a broad argument in the Bible that only works if there's a rapture of the church, a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. But that's that's what we have. But we shouldn't be too unsettled by that, right? It's kind of, it's kind of like Trinity, you know. Give give me the Bible verse that that explains the Trinity. Well, can't do that. But we can sort of collect a lot of data and put it together, piece it together, and we can come up with a pretty good model for the Trinity even though we don't have that nice, clean, crisp proof text. So it's not unusual uh, that this, this happens in, in, in systematic theology. In fact, if, if, you're, if you've been tracking with me, we, this is our eighth class here now, you realize that a lot of times the, the, the topics that we spend the most time on are the ones that there isn't a clear Bible verse for, and so we have to sort of tease out uh, specifics uh, from the broader context of Scripture. So that's what I think we have here in 
the pre-tribulational rapture. Still, I think there are some texts that do teach it, and I'd like to start with those. Okay, so Revelation 3, 10, and 11. This is a section of Scripture written to the church in Philadelphia. Remember, the uh, first three chapters of Revelation are given to seven churches uh, that are uh, all in uh, modern-day Turkey. And uh, they're really... We probably should think of them in many ways like the rest of the letters of the New Testament, right? They are written specifically in a letter to the Philippians or the Colossians or the Corinthians. They're written specifically to those churches, and yet we all recognize that in the writing of them, the author had a broader audience in view. He wasn't just writing something specifically for Philippi or Corinth or Thessalonica, there was a realization that they are writing some material that would be a broad benefit to the whole church through the ages, okay? And so we should probably think of these the same way. We shouldn't think of them as, as somehow limited in their, in their instruction to a single church and that the rest of us are simply onlookers. Uh, we actually do find ourselves, in many senses, represented by these seven churches, uh, not in every respect. I'm not trying to say that these are uh, these are uh, somehow uh, reflections of the different epochs of the church. I, I know some of them some some have suggested that, but at the same time, we find ourselves represented here, just as we find ourselves represented in Coloss Colossians and Philippians and Corinthians and, and such. Okay. So with that being said, we recognize that this material written to the church at Philadelphia has a broader audience than just this church. So what does John have to say to this church? Well, he says, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. When he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So he's commending this church. So even though there was, there was an exhaustion, uh, perhaps a weakness of faith that was, being, that was developing in the Philadelphian church, he commends them for not having left the faith. And then he makes this promise here. I will make those of you who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews that are not but liars, I will make them uh, come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. And since you have kept my command and endured patiently, I also will keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one can take your crown. Okay? So the description here is of an hour of testing that is going to come not merely on the church at Philadelphia, but a tribulation, an hour of testing that is going to come over the whole world. It's universal in its extent. And so it's broader than just the historical persecution that the Philadelphian church was uh, enduring. The fact that it is the hour of testing, I think, further indicates that this is a well-known, clearly defined period of time described elsewhere in Scripture, not just a local, incidental persecution that was unique to the Philadelphian church. church uh, Philadelphian church. The seven churches, again, are historical churches, but they have something of a representative function in that the information in these letters has application, in some sense at least, to the church in every age. That's why it's included in the Christian scriptures. The fact that verse 11 closes this promise with a, with a statement here that Christ is coming soon indicates what form this rescue is going to take, okay? So he is going to rescue the church, those who remain faithful, those who do not apostatize. He is going to rescue them, how? By coming soon. So he's going to come and deliver them, 
And so the, uh, so the, the means whereby uh, the, uh, the, this, this church here individually, but I think broadly, it, it, we, should, we should understand it broadly, uh, we are going to be kept from the hour of testing, described variously in the Old Testament, we're going to be kept from this hour of testing by the arrival of Jesus Christ. Okay, and so I think this statement, I think, pretty clearly says uh, that uh, certainly this historical church, uh, but I think also the whole church can anticipate here that faith, that that a that a faithful um, tenure as the church will will meet then uh, with a rescue from the hour of wrath by means of Christ coming. Okay. We also find that the verb here, you're kept from the hour of testing, denotes deliverance, not protection through. Uh, this, is, this, is a, this is what is understood by the post-tribulationalists. They take this verb uh, that is translated in just about every uh, English translation. In, in mine, he's, it's going to keep you from the hour of testing, that's what the NIV says. You, you may have different translations here, but just about every translation has that kind of verbiage in it. You are going to be, uh, you are going to be kept from the trial. Okay? It's not that we are going to be kept through the trial, but rather we are going to be kept from the trial. We will not endure this particular trial. And so deliverance is the most common meaning of this construction. To convey the idea of protection through would require a different Greek word. Okay? A numberless throng, then, of saints will die during the tribulation, which itself proves that saints are not summarily protected through the tribulation. Many people who are converted during the tribulation will die. In fact, we, we have this one just rather graphic scene where there's, there's the, the, the souls of those who perished during the tribulation are actually before the altar crying out, how long, how long? When are we going to get our vindication? So the fact of the matter is that believers are not kept through the tribulation. Many, many will die. That's part of the cost of embracing a Christ at the 11th hour. Okay? Uh, and so the church is not if, if that is the church, the church is not protected through the tribulation. Rather, the promise here is that they will be protected from this tribulation. Okay. Uh, again, another response here by the post-tribulationalist is that the church is protected from God's wrath, but not from man's wrath. But that seems to be something of a pyrrhic victory here. Um, okay, so we are kept from the wrath of God, but we're going to all die anyway doesn't seem to give a lot of comfort here to the Philadelphian church who is, who is enduring, apparently, great trial already. Okay? Questions on that particular verse? I think we have time for one more. Let's, let's do 1 Thessalonians 1.10. This is a commendation that uh, Paul is giving to the Thessalonian church for having turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Again, so again, this rescue from the wrath to come. And this verb phrase is most commonly translated rescue from, again, does not mean deliverance through, but rather rescue from. In fact, the latter translation would be absurd for all of the other New Testament uses of this verb. Lot was rescued from Sodom. He was not rescued through Sodom. Paul was rescued from death, not through death. Believers were rescued, this is a description of our salvation, rescued from the domain of darkness and to the kingdom of his dear son. We're not rescued through the domain of darkness, and so on, and so on, and so forth. Okay, so this, this verb clearly means rescue from, not deliverance through. And the deliverance from the wrath takes the form of the arrival of Christ from heaven. Now, the, the, other, the only other question we have is perhaps the identity of this wrath. Uh, the post-tribulationalist says uh, that the wrath that, from which we are rescued is the wrath of God 
meted out of those who are in the lake of fire. Okay, So the church is going to escape that wrath. Of course, that is true. But is that what the verse is saying? Um, I think clearly uh, in context here that this wrath, while an end times wrath still hasn't occurred yet, is not the final wrath of hell, as can easily be seen in the context of the rest of this chapter, uh, where we find that the persecution of the raptures was so intense that some believed that they were already in the tribulation, somehow having missed Christ's coming. But no one was confusing this with the flames of the lake of fire. Okay? And so there was an anticipation here in 1 Thessalonians 1 uh, that the faithful, the church here, are going to be able to have a deliverance from not merely the flames of hell, but also the tribulation, this great hour of time uh, in which uh, that, uh, that uh, Christ would come from heaven to deliver them. Okay, Thoughts on that one? Okay, we're going to sort of cut off right in the middle here, um, but uh, next week we'll come back, look at a couple of more texts, and then, as you can see here, starting on pages uh, 20, 22 and following, a, uh, a, a series of additional arguments that are not so much single verses as they are uh, larger arguments from, the, from theology broadly. Okay? Okay, thanks for coming, and uh, we will see you all next week.